Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama is part illegal immigrants. Uh, uh, noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Thanks to the president's new trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan, 2020. Keep America great. Andrew Sheldrick, thanks for joining us this week for our first roundtable podcast. We've got two great guests here to discuss the future of the US-Australia alliance amidst increasing tensions with China, and to look at where 2020 candidates stand on the future of the US-China relationship. Before we jump in, let's have a listen to how alliance politics have played out for Australia and the United States in recent years. In my view, Australians are defined by their character, by their grit, their integrity, their unyielding resilience that has shaped this nation from the very beginning. And it's that character, in my view, which has always drawn Australians and Americans together. With the election of Donald Trump, can Australia continue to depend on the United States alliance the way that it has? In foreign policy terms, we're getting the message from, from President-elect Donald Trump that he's a big power guy and he's not for alliances. Like, wink, wink, you maybe on your own, it's time to cut the tag. Time to get out of it. I had a constructive call with President Trump yesterday. This was the worst call by far, the President's quoted saying, after hanging up 25 minutes into a scheduled hour-long... The President period. had a very cordial conversation with Prime Minister Trumbull. While he has respect for the, for the Australian people and respect for Prime Minister Trumbull, we have a tremendous amount of respect for the people of Australia, for Prime Minister Trumbull. Donald and I, we are winning and winning in the hall. <laughs> A new project by the US and Australia to develop a naval base in Papua New Guinea is being seen as a move to curb China's growing influence in the Pacific. It's my privilege to announce that the United States will partner with Papua New Guinea and Australia on their joint initiative at Lombrum Naval Base on Manus Island. I'm sitting right here. So I congratulate you, but it's an honour and we will be with Australia and you all the way. Thank you very much, Mr President. Australia and the United States have always been the greatest of friends, uh, not just in areas of strategic cooperation, but economically and the people-to-people -people relationships. Well, there's none better. Dr. Charles Edel is a former advisor to US Secretary of State John Kerry, and Dr. John Lee is a former advisor to Australian Foreign Minister Julie Bishop. They're both senior fellows at the United States Study Centre and co-authors of a new report titled The Future of the US-Australia Alliance in an Era of Great Power Competition. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having Great us. Great to be here. John, if I can start with you, why is now the time to be reassessing the US-Australia relationship? The Australian-American alliance was forged in the heart of the Cold War. So the alliance does very well when it comes to defence and intelligence cooperation. China is a very different challenge. It is not just a revisionist power in strategic and security terms. In some respects, it's an, it's an economic rival. And uh, at, at the same time, it's indispensably economically and diplomatically in the region. The alliance needs to be broadened uh, to cover economics and, and institutional and diplomatic cooperation. 
We have to remember that China's primary strategy in a region is to divide American allies. The alliance with Australia along Japan are the two most important alliances for the United States. We need these two alliances, in this case the Australian-American alliance, uh, to step up and respond constructively to some of Chinese uh, China's policies. Charles, if I can turn to you, under a US administration that's vowed uh, America first, uh, is Australia right to be sceptical that America has its allies' interests uh, in mind as well as its own? Yes. Uh, you know, frankly, when uh, Trump was campaigning for the presidency, he said that one of his motive issues was he wanted to be more pre- unpredictable, right? He wanted to make the United States more unpredictable, to throw adversaries off balance. Uh, The problem is you can't cabin that off from your allies as well. So if America is more unpredictable, that does have effect when we're talking about competitors, but it also has effect when we're dealing with allies and partners. And so because the United States under Donald Trump has been very clear that it wants to ramp up the competitive aspects of its dealings with China, and then it's overdue to do so. That's one part of this. But on the second part, when it talks about America first, it's less clear in the region what the ultimate objective is, what the strategy that the U.S. is going to pursue, and what resources it's willing to allocate to that. So if you are sitting out here in the region, I would imagine that all of those questions give rise to increasing anxiety about what actually is the end game that the United States is looking for. And frankly, if it's at cross purposes with allies, which I tend to think it's not, but it might very well be, you're likely to get less buy-in. Uh, John, what does Canberra want from Washington at the moment that, that it isn't currently getting, do you think? It strikes me that while Australia and the United States both agree um, when it comes to the egregiousness of Chinese economic behaviour in a global economic system, both countries, Australia and the United States, take a very different approach to what to do about it. United States, as superpowers do, tend to take a very forward-leaning, proactive approach if they don't like the system or if the system doesn't work for them, they tend to take unilateral measures to change it in their favour, and that's understandable. For a smaller economy like Australia and a smaller power like Australia, we need to know what the institutional outcome of this trade war between the United States and America, or United States and China is. So Australia cannot rely forever on there being a permanent uh, economic offensive between the Chinese and the Americans. We need to know what the end point is and what the end point looks like. So, for example, do we want WTO reform? Is that why we're compelling China um, with these measures? Do we want something beyond the WTO? Without this kind of information, smaller countries like Australia cannot make the uh, risk calculations they need to make uh, when deciding whether to join on uh, to actions by the Americans. Charles, is that a fair thing to, to ask from uh, Washington, do you think? Yes. Uh, if, if the scale and scope of the challenge uh, is quite large, um, it requires a reciprocal, a reciprocally large response from America and its allies. But you're unlikely to get that unless you have these honest type of conversations, unless we lay out not only where we agree, as John had already talked about, there are areas of cooperation in defense, in intelligence, where we already agree and we're likely to agree even more so and step out in increasing ways. But on areas where sometimes our interests, sometimes our frame of mind 
work at cross-purposes, that doesn't mean that they're inseparable, but without an honest conversation about why we line up differently and an agreed action plan about how we're going to work to bridge those. And frankly, where we can't bridge those perfectly, where we're going to step out on our own to make sure that we're still pursuing the same objective, you're likely to have a lowest common denominator type of approach, which is simply insufficient in the new era that we're in. We saw Nancy Pelosi speak out uh, this week on the extradition bill currently being debated in Hong Kong. She said, if it passes, the Congress has no choice but to reassess whether Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous under the one country, two systems framework. Uh, On top of these issues like the ongoing trade war, uh, is there a real risk that if things flare up over this, we're at risk of a a real showdown between the US and China. You want to take that one first, John? Sure. There is a risk of of a flare-up, but the the question is not whether there might be a flare-up, but whether that flare-up is worth it. We have to remember that Hong Kong was promised one country, two systems. Uh, Now, there was a time when uh, that system could theoretically be applied to Taiwan. When we watch the way the Chinese understand one country, two systems, which is basically one country, China system, um, that has implications for the way we look at Taiwan uh, and, and certainly the way China would wield its power should its power continue to increase and America's uh, influence in the region continues to decrease. From the Australian point of view, Australia traditionally does not speak um, overtly about human rights and political rights as they uh, pertain to other countries. But in this case, I think we have an interest in doing so um, because we have invested in the one country, two systems. We have invested in the future of Taiwan. Uh, And more broadly, uh, I think we do need to signal to the Chinese where our interests and values lie. If we don't do that, uh, the Chinese will often take that as Australian acquiescence. Uh, and that does not leave Australia uh, in in a sustainable position. Yeah, if I can just jump in there. Uh, Watching the protests, the mass protests, you know, you continue to see uh, guessing how many people are out there, but the numbers continue to go upward. Uh, The last one I read is a million people on the streets of Hong Kong. Uh, You know, I think when I watch these, there's no way that we can help but be inspired uh, by what's happening and also very concerned uh, for the citizens of Hong Kong. And I think that what's so powerful about these images is that they give lie to the fact that these are simply Western values that we're talking about. Uh, These are values that all people, no matter where they live, aspire to. And for countries that have a joint interest in promoting rule of law, freedom of the press, freedom of association, and freedom of speech, this is the time where both America and Australia and others in the region, if not globally, can make use of international institutions, no less their own power of example and statement to begin to make sure that uh, those in Hong Kong feel that they are not alone and Beijing hears response from our capitals. I wanted to uh, just go back on something that you just touched on uh, in your answer, John. There, there had been some criticism uh, in the past about the Australian government and uh, the foreign minister's uh, response to certain sort of China's human rights abuses, uh, things like uh, uh, the detention of those two Canadian um, citizens, for example. So there was uh, criticism that the response was too slow or it wasn't sort of coming at all. Do you think um, there's a fear uh, that uh, being critical might impact, uh, say, something like the economic relationship with China from the Australian government? That fear is there because we know that China does use economic threats and sometimes even active coercion uh, to punish countries for taking political or other strategic decisions that Beijing doesn't like. 
But the question is, what do you do about that? And I think there are two models to, um, to look at. The first is the South Korean model. Under the previous uh, South Korean administration under President Park, she initially took a very soft view towards China. She reached out a hand. She refused to criticise China for, for any uh, policies or any actions. And when a North Korean started firing missiles, President Park took the reasonable step of uh, agreeing to American THAAD anti-missile defence systems in South Korea. Now, what happened? The Chinese, enraged, used to uh, acquiescence or subservience from South Korea, launched an all-out uh, economic coercive action against the South Korean economy, uh, which probably costed around $10 billion uh, in 2018. The other model is the Japanese model. Japan went through a very rocky period with the Chinese over issues such as the Japanese making a more proactive contribution to peace, which really means countering China. Uh, Japan reinterpreting its constitution to allow it to come to the aid of allies, which was something quite new. Uh, the general expansion of the Japanese military forces and its strategic role and presence in the region. Uh, a few months ago, uh, the Japanese had a submarine uh, go through the South China Sea for the first time. The point I'm making is that Japan went through a lot of heat with the Chinese, but it conditioned the Chinese to accept what its standards were. We've had seen a rapprochement between Japan and China in recent times, and the rapprochement is largely on Japanese terms. Uh, Australia should, I think, learn from the latter Japanese example. Charles, there's a, a few recommendations uh, in your report with John about how Australia can protect itself um, economically against retaliation. Did you want to touch on a few of those just in reference to, to this uh, this issue? Sure. Uh, you know, John was just talking about different models. Uh, and one of the models is when you have a conversation about differences in outlook, differences in perspective between, say, the United States and Australia, you'll begin to say, look, uh, economic investment uh, outbound and inbound from China can be a good thing. It depends on what it's in, uh, but it can be a good thing. But over-reliance on a single market puts you over a barrel. And so it's great when it, keep, when it comes in, but if it can be turned off, it can really get you cross-purposes. So when you have this conversation in the United States, it's 5 to 6% of U.S. Uh, exports go to China. When you have that conversation here in Australia, it's 33% of Australian exports head up to China. You know, we all know coal. We now talk about wine. We talk about Chinese students. Uh, we talk about tourism. And the fact is, this has helped bolster uh, the Australian economy. But it also gives China an amazing amount of leverage because gifts that are given can be taken away. And we've seen this with the coal uh, that is set on the docks. We've seen this with wine. We've seen it with the threat uh, issued by the Chinese embassy and consulate to Chinese students uh, with a throat clearing, really, about whether or not they would turn off the spigot to Australian higher education. So one of the responses, uh, one of the recommendations uh, that John and I have in the report is that both America and Australia need to fundamentally recalibrate what their economic relationship is with China. For the United States, this means the two economies are going to begin to decouple. There's dumb decoupling, where we kind of rip the Band-Aid off, and then there's a smarter one, where both countries have an interest in protecting key industries. For Australia, it's looking for other customers. Frankly, almost every uh, commodity that I just talked about is something that other countries in the world want to buy. You're not going to stop selling to China. You shouldn't stop selling to China, but you want to become less reliant upon that single market. 
I, I know businesses will often object to the notion they should diversify because their response will be that we cannot do things that are commercially irrational or against what our shareholders want. We're not suggesting that. I suggest a change in mindset. Businesses diversify strategically all the time. They diversify their supply chains, who their customers may be, uh, where they get materials from, uh, where they do their marketing, where they get their professional services for various reasons. What we're suggesting is that due diligence should be done not just on the economic conditions that they must deal with, but the political conditions. And the reality is that China is a large major economy that does, through many of its policies, distort the global economy. Um, and the political risk factors are created by China. It's not created by the Australian government or the United States government uh, fundamentally. So our suggestion or my suggestion is that businesses need to change their mindset. Due diligence should include political risk considerations. Let's uh, have a chat about the 2020 race uh, and how these issues might intersect. Um, Joe Biden uh, said this week that uh, the US needs to get tough with China. Uh, Pete Buttigieg also released his foreign policy platform on Tuesday, which said China should be chastised for its authoritarian capitalism and record on human rights. But he also says that China can be a partner on issues like climate change, terrorism and international peacekeeping, which seemed an interesting pitch. Uh, where do Democrats go on this heading into next year, the US-China relationship? Do Charles do you want to stop? Yeah, I'll take that one first. Uh, so China is a issue which connects other issues. It is unclear to this point whether or not Democrats want to make the want to make the case that A, foreign policies should be a dominant theme of the election, and B, whether or not they want to connect issues. And when I talk about connect issues, I'm talking about domestic issues, I'm talking about economics, I'm talking about finance, I'm talking about innovation in the technological space, I'm talking about values and national security. Right. China is the only issue that connects all those other ones. It is a live debate within the Democratic candidates about both whether or not they want to talk about foreign policy, and second, whether or not they want to make a comprehensive case to the American people that in order to get more competitive, they have to understand the threats that are propelling them forward. But what I would say is you are beginning to see the field begin to uh, uh, harden around certain positions. So you pointed to both uh, Biden and Buttigieg, but you've also seen Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders make similar statements in the sense that we are facing an authoritarian rival who fundamentally challenges economic prosperity at home and American values abroad. Surely those two candidates in particular aren't interested in that kind of foreign policy platform sort of building? I mean, Sanders in particular, right, has been hesitant to talk about China in the past? Uh, well, he's been hesitant in the past, but he's been less hesitant this time around. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I take your point, uh, Drew, but why would he give not one but two speeches so far? Why would Elizabeth Warren, who's carved herself out as different uh, than Bernie Sanders and in some ways more assertive on this, make this point? And all that is to say that I think the Democratic field, particularly the leading contenders thus far, right, Warren, Sanders... Biden, uh, but a judge are all beginning to talk more and more about China as the single issue that is animating Democrats on the national security front and potentially propelling them forward on making certain investments domestically. John, have you been following the, the Democratic field? Have you sort of seen their comments so far? As an Australian who visits the United States regularly, I think one of the political successes, if you can call it that, or if you'd like to call it that, of uh, Donald Trump, is that he has linked the low-wage conditions of Americans with China. 
And whether that uh, can be brought out empirically, the point is politically that link has been made and that is an issue that Democrats have to deal with politically as they enter into the 2020 elections. As someone that used to work uh, with the Australian government, do do you think that uh, there's anyone currently thinking about a post-Trump world or a potentially new Democratic president uh, next year and and what that could mean for US-Australian relations? I have to say the confidence in predicting American elections is at (laughs) all-time low. And Australian elections, I might say. And Australian elections. (laughs) I... um, when, when I was in government and it was um, du- uh, during a time when of the last presidential election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and the briefings on what a Hillary office would look like was thick, mm. inches thick. The briefings on what a Trump uh, presidential White House would look like was a few pages long. Yeah. Um, when we wanted information before the elections on uh, what the Donald Trump White House may look like or what they may do, uh, we, didn't, we could hardly get any. And I don't blame our embassies and, and our other analysts. No, I don't think he knew. I mean, staffing-wise, I mean, they were only sort of designing post-election, right? They weren't doing the, the, the sort of due diligence beforehand. Correct. Yeah. That's, that, that's correct. So, so, so the point, point I make now is that the lesson that has thought us quite seriously is that we, we don't make predictions in a eventual two-horse race. Two, both horses can win. Gentlemen, thank you very much for stopping by today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. My pleasure. If you'd like to read Charles and John's report, it's available on the United States Study Centre website, ussc.edu.au. Thanks this week to Ketzer, Lloyd Rogers and the Babamara Brass Band for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 